Amen. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, would love for you to open up to Psalm 27 this morning. Uh, not too hard to find, kind of in the middle of the Bible. Would love for you to find that place. And we're actually going to begin our time together by reading the whole chapter. It's just 14 verses. I believe this will really set the tone for uh, the message today and really the next couple of weeks as we're beginning a brand new series. Uh, uh, easy to, to figure out who it's about or what it's about uh, as we get into uh, a very specific person in the Bible and, and about his life and, and how it really tells the story uh, of a life that uh, was changed by God and, and a life that was perpetually and constantly redeemed by the Lord. But uh, we'll get into that in just a little bit. Psalm 27, uh, if you found your place, uh, let's hear God's word together from a pretty familiar passage of scripture. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came up against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and my foes, they stumbled and they fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. And underlying, circle, highlight, whatever you do to your Bible to denote an important verse, this is one of those. One thing have I desired of the Lord, one thing that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in this pavilion in the secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me, he shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant, turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord and be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord." Again, verse four is such a powerful statement that the writer says, one thing have I desired. One thing I have prayed for the most and one thing I have made it the foundation of my life and that the driving force, the determining factor over all of my life. One thing I have desired more than anything and everything else. The decision that was made that begin to influence every other, other decision. Now, I, I think we all can agree, and I think this is a good place to start, that there is a powerful force driving all of us, that every one of us deep down from within, at our hearts, in our souls, we are all driven by something. We all are influenced by something, and, and sometimes it's several things, but usually it's one thing, specifically one thing, or maybe a few things. All of us are influenced by something, and all of our decisions uh, all are 
turn in a certain direction. Uh, we do things or we do not do things. We are influenced or we are restraining from things based on that drive, that force, that desire. But the thing is, the desire is not the same in all of us, that every one of us may be driven by something completely different. That all of us have a desire, but the desire is different. But, in, but the presence of some kind of desire has the same sort of power over all of us. So even though our desires may be different, even though the thing that influences you and the thing that influences your neighbor may be completely different from each other, the impact that thing has on you and has on them is similar. All of us are driven by something, maybe some things, maybe at different times in your life that desire, that drive changes, uh, particularly uh, Today, it may be one thing, and next year or next decade, it may change completely. But nonetheless, we all have something behind the choices that we make or the choices that we don't make. We're all motivated or unmotivated by something. And I think maybe we don't realize this, even the lack of motivation is a reflection of something that is driving us, something that is controlling us, something that is determining decisions that we do or do not make. Even if whatever it is is something that we wouldn't celebrate, there's something in us and under us and within us that is determining the decisions that we make and influencing every decision that we make or do not make. And in a lot of ways, the driving force of our lives, behind our lives, has taken over our lives in good ways and sometimes in not so good ways, sometimes in uncontrollable and healthy ways. And and sometimes, again, good or bad, if a desire becomes strong enough, the desire no longer is ours, but we belong to it. See, as something, and I think all of us can relate to this, sometimes we become so motivated by something, we become so driven by something that it's no longer us making the decisions, but that thing in us, that idea, that concept, that issue, that thing in us is actually determining and steering the direction of our lives. And I think that might, again, as abstract as that may seem, that is so true. I think we can agree. Desire and ambition and drive are extremely powerful. They're able to galvanize us and give us a determination that is very persistent, that's overriding our functions at times. We've all got desires. That is a a thing that human beings share. We are all driven by those desires. In many cases, those desires have hooks in us that are actually making decisions for us. And just a few examples of the different desires that drives uh, that we all have had or that we all have. Uh, general, as, as general human beings, there are a few things that I think all of us can say, yeah, I've had that or I have that or I, I, I see that in other people. Uh, we all have so many shared experiences. And I think a lot of us can relate to these different desires and, and things that drive us. Some of us are driven by success or driven for success, that we are so determined to succeed for ourselves or others, we may be different for most of us or, or all of us, but all of us know what it's like to want to be successful and be driven to be successful. Now, maybe you've never uh, had that, you know, as passionate as maybe someone else that you know, but we all know of somebody, and maybe we would say, yeah, I'm that person, uh, that success is the desire, it's the drive, it's the determining factor for most of the decisions that you make. You want to be successful, you want to take another step, you want to climb another level, you want to be successful, and you want to have all the privileges that come along with that kind of success. And again, success is different for everybody. Success is defined differently by everybody, but we all know what it's like, and we all 
have a taste of it. We want more of it in different ways. Also, often we're driven by redemption as in, hey, I've got a second chance. I wanna make the most of it. Maybe you made some decisions that you are ashamed of and you get that next chance. You get that another chance and you wanna make the most of it and you wanna capitalize on it. And that idea of redemption and that idea of showing people that you are different or showing yourself that you are gonna be different this time. That idea of having a second chance, that idea of redemption that drives you and it is the desire that motivates the decisions that you make. Honestly, a lot of us are driven by expectations. Maybe you have expectations for yourself, but in a lot of ways, those expectations come from other people, don't they? Your parents, your spouse, your maybe someone else that had a very uh, a powerful influence over you that you were expected to be a certain thing or a certain person and do certain things. And that those expectations uh, begin to make decisions for you. And even if you didn't wanna do something, you, you were expected to be someone or do something. So you are driven by that and by those expectations. And I think all of us can relate and we might would laugh about it and say, well, that's not me, but all of us know what it's like to be driven by love or by affections. Uh, you know, I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but you've heard the, the saying before, uh, love will make you do crazy things. Sometimes those crazy things are good, crazy. Sometimes they're not so good, right? Uh, sometimes they're foolish, but love will make us do a lot of things that, or, uh, that we maybe would not have thought we would do and would not do again in a more uh, kind of uh, 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 self-controlled uh, state of mind. I, I think we can all relate to these sorts of desires within us, motivating us, compelling us, and pulling us in a certain direction. And you may would raise your hand and say, I'm driven by something completely different, but I understand, yeah, some are driven by success. Some are driven by that redemption they've been given. Some are driven by expectations and, or love. And, and, and maybe you've got something else you would say is the desire that motivates you. And, and maybe there's something that's motivating you that you aren't even aware of, yet somebody else might would be able to identify it. Uh, there are other kinds that are not as positive, uh, even outright negative things that drive us. Things like revenge. I'm sure all of us, whether we would want to admit it or not, have been driven by that revenge or that retribution before. Maybe somebody did something to you and you wanted to show them that they weren't gonna define you or you wanted to prove to them or prove to yourself in some way that, hey, I'm gonna show them or I'm gonna make up for that. And, and, and again, sometimes this kind of idea of, of vengeance, it can get out of control and it can take you in directions that you would never uh, agree to go in. And this is an example of when drives and desires have us because they cause us to do things that we just would not really have signed up for. Uh, also, there's spite. Uh, a lot of us make decisions out of spite that, we, we, again, we, we do this kind of subtly. Uh, we we, we kind of make decisions that are spiteful towards somebody else or towards some other idea. Uh, and, and a lot of people, a lot more of us are driven by spite than maybe we would want to admit. Uh, there's also the, the desire or the drive of guilt or shame. Um, we feel like we owe people something. We feel like we owe ourselves something. Or uh, maybe we feel like that we have to live a life of compensation for others. Uh, maybe things that you did do wrong or you didn't do wrong, but you are driven by that and really in some ways haunted by that. And you never can really get free from that idea that I've got to do this because I just kind of owe it to somebody or I kind of, you know, uh, I've kind of guilted into doing it. And then an another one that may not be as comfortable to talk about, and, and none of these are really comfortable in some ways, but uh, a lot of us are, are driven by, and, and human beings are driven by depression. And, and in some cases of depression, it's the opposite of being driven. 
it, it's being paralyzed. Uh, it's that our ambition is stifled. That even though we have the capacity to have ambition and desire and drive, uh, depression will stifle that. Depression will uh, take that away from us or make us feel as if we don't have the ability or you know, the, the opportunities that others seem to have. And, and maybe you would describe yourself as being unmotivated, uh, as without a desire to do anything or do certain things. And, and a lot of us, I think, there's a mixture of these motivations within us. Uh, we are driven by a combination of all these things and in different seasons of our lives, different ones take first place. In some ways, they often conflict with each other. Uh, that really just depends on which one is stronger uh, and which one has more influence. That's the one that usually will stand out. And, and whereas we might say there are several factors within us, those that observe us, and people observe us, right? Those that observe us, they usually can do a better job at identifying uh, the single factor that seems to have the most control over us uh, because they will be seeing the outward expression of whichever one won out. But I think all of us deep down, all of us know which desire rules them all. All of us know what our greatest desire is. It's the one that tips the scales. It's the one that moves the needle. It's the one that ultimately has the greatest sway over us. You know, sometimes, and, and this might be a completely crazy thing for some of y'all to hear, but sometimes I'm in the shopping mood, and, uh, which is every once in a while. And when I get in the shopping mood, uh, I go to my web browser and I open up several different stores and, and, and different tabs. And uh, when I say shopping mood, I'm talking, I go online because 2020 completely broke me from ever really wanting to go to stores or needing to go to stores. So when I go shopping, I open my web browser and I open about four or five tabs and there are the different stores that I like to buy from, whether it's clothes or just stuff that I'm into or technology. Um, I'll open a few tabs on my web browser and I will go through and I'll add stuff to the carts that I add stuff to the respective carts. Um, and and then I will pull back and I'll think, I can't buy all this stuff. There's literally thousands of dollars worth of stuff in all these different tabs you've added up. I can't buy all that stuff. I can't even buy everything in one cart. But I've filled all the carts up and I've got them all, all the tabs open. I'll sit back and I'll think, which of these do I really, really need something from? And I'll start closing windows based on which ones I just don't really need and which stores I really don't need something from at the time. And it changes from different seasons and based on what, you know, is going on and, and what is more important to me at that time, whether myself or other people. Depending on the season, I may be more motivated to buy one thing over the other. But nonetheless, something always wins out. And one by one, I'll close the tab and then I'll open the card of the store I decided to buy stuff from. And again, this might be a completely neurotic sociopathic way to do shopping, which if that's, if you just learned that about me, maybe uh, you're, you, hopefully you're not too disappointed. That's a crazy thing. You think, Justin, why don't you just buy one thing from each store? I can't do that. I just want to go to one and buy the stuff that I need. And I'll, next month I'll buy something from the other store. Um, I, I'm not completely insane, but sometimes I have those habits. Uh, I don't want to get but one box from one store. Okay. So I'll go through the tab and I'll say, not that one, not that one, not that one. And then that one's left. And I think, you know what, what can I afford? And I'll go through and I'll delete stuff from the cart. See how my brain works. Now, Depending on, again, depending on what is more important, eventually one thing wins out. And I think that's kind of how it works when it comes to what is driving us and what is determining our decisions. There's always a desire that overrides the rest. There's always a desire that's guiding our decisions. And, 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 and if you see your desires and drives like I you know, see those tabs on my computer, if everything you could be doing was one of the tabs you could have open or one of the apps you could have open, if you were to narrow your priorities down to just one, which one would rise above the rest? 
Whenever, you know, if you have a smartphone, you close out all your apps. If you leave one running, which is the one you leave open? Which is the one you leave on your front page? Which is the one that you see as the most important one? When it comes to desires, the drives, and determinations, there's always one that seems to cut above the rest, that rise above the rest, that would remain open when all the other doors are shut. Now, maybe you have an answer to that. Maybe you don't think you could answer that so easily. But Jesus, who has some pretty smart things to say and insightful things to say, Jesus, however, would say that answering that question should be really easy. That uh, he, he's a pretty authoritative voice on most areas of life. And Jesus said, I'll tell you how you determine which one has the most power over you. He said this in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus said that where you devote the most of your life, that where the most of your treasure is found, that where, where you invest most of your life reveals the most power over you, what has the most power over you and the most pull over you. That even if the underlying motives are hidden, the overflow and result of those desires would be obvious because what receives the most attention from you and what receives the most investments from you and what gets most of your energy and most of your time, that's the one you value the most. That's the one where your heart lies. Now on some days it's your career, some days it's your spouse, some days it's your kids, some days it's your pastimes, but it changes at times. And if you wanna find out, just check the receipts, right? So subjectively, we may say, well, I don't know which one is the most important and it's different from day to day. But objectively, the time, the expense and the energy reveal the irrefutable winner. Which one has the most powerful, which desire to drive and determination is guiding you with the most influence. So I think maybe if we did this and we kind of begin to step back from our life and, and, and evaluate the decisions we make and the things that we choose and the things that we don't choose, I think it would be, would be revealed to us. And maybe you'd be surprised, maybe you'd be proud, maybe you'd be embarrassed or ashamed or disappointed in yourself. I, I don't know, but deep down, even without doing all the details and all the investigation, I think deep down we know. I think deep down you know, and I think deep down I know why we do what we do and why we prioritize what we prioritize, why we rank the things that we do the way that we do. And, and we know why some things take a hit while other things are non-negotiable. We know why number one remains number one. You know, and I know, we are products of those desires. So we could spend the next few hours determining what everybody's top motivating factor is. And we wouldn't do that because that would be a little bit uncomfortable, but we could do that. And we could all go one by one saying, hey, let's figure it out. And we could figure it out. And we might be, again, surprised, might be proud or ashamed. We would find out what everyone's strongest and most prominent desire is, or, or you could just ask your spouse, they'll probably tell you. But we could use this as an opportunity to actually get to the point of this introduction, which there is a point, usually there's a point. At this point, you'd probably expect me, because this is church, and after all, you usually this is where we go with these kind of things. At this point, you'd probably expect me to start talking about what our shared ultimate desire ought to be. How desiring God and desiring to glorify Him should be everyone's top motivator. Now, that's the natural next step we should take in this conversation. But we're not going to do that exactly just yet. We could run right to that, and we'll get there. But before we talk about what our desire ought to be and how our desire ought to be for God, what if I told you that whether you choose to put God first, whether you desire God more than anything else or not, what if I told you that God's desire is for you? 
What if I told you that even if you never put him first, and even if you never put him where he should be in your life, God's desire is for us. What if I told you that regardless if you ever take two steps toward him, God in his infinite and omnipresent nature, as in he can be everywhere at everybody at the same time, What if I told you that God in his infinite and omnipresent nature is always taking steps towards you, not just us as a whole, as humanity, but you as his creation, as his chosen, as his child. What if I told you that regardless if you ever choose him, God has already chosen you. I think we're expected and we're conditioned in this ruthless world and because of how paranoid religious nature is, we think God would never ever be for us unless we were first for him. We think, and maybe you've been told this before, that God only moves towards you if you more move toward him and God only desires you if you first sufficiently desire him. Maybe that's what you believe, maybe that's what you've been taught, but it's the exact opposite as the Bible actually teaches. Regardless if you ever put him first, seek him first, desire him first above all else and desire to glorify him as you should through all that you do. Allow him to become your overarching motivator ambition. The gospel is, the Bible's overarching, the Bible's complete story. The gospel is that God seeks you, God loves you and God desires you even though, even though you haven't so much as considered him and even if you never do. That's the gospel, that God desires you even if you never desire him. God loves you even if you never love him. That God seeks you and pursues you even if you never take two steps toward him. That's the gospel. And if you're a religious person, you've been raised in church like me, something you might say, I don't know about that, Justin. I don't know if God will come to me if I don't come to him. And if you have ever, if you've been there and you're stuck there, I hope we can break you out of that today. But if you're also someone that you you wouldn't ever consider yourself a Christian or you wouldn't consider yourself a religious person and this seems completely unfair to you or you know, uh, unreal to you and why would God ever want me and why would God ever desire me? Let me promise you this. This is the gospel the good news that God desires you even if you never desire him. That's the story of the Bible. There's actually an allegory in the Bible that was written just to communicate this message. It's often overlooked. It's otherwise associated. And that allegory that I want you to turn with me to for just a minute is in the song of Solomon. Now, I know what you're thinking as we turn there. Is Song of Solomon really a Sunday morning appropriate conversation to have? And what does this have to do with God and us? I thought that had to do with somebody else and somebody else. Don't worry, we'll keep it PG. It's really, really actually an allegory of what we've been talking about. Now, I want you to look over at Song of Solomon chapter seven and I'll explain quickly what this story is about and, and keep your marker there in Psalms. We'll turn back there in a minute. Song of Solomon is a dramatic and fanciful retelling of how Solomon first fell in love with, uh, first fell in love, the first person that he ever fell in love with, a young lady named Shula. Uh, most likely it was written to be performed as a play because it's written in, in poetry, it's written in uh, uh, kind of a playwright form. Uh, it was somewhat arranged of an arranged marriage and his bride, Shula, uh, was very down on herself. She was a princess, but not the princess type. Uh, she worked in a garden. She wasn't much for palaces or pageantry. She didn't really think of herself to be a beautiful person or a princess type that a king or a prince would want. 
according to tradition, uh, Solomon pursues her and they fall in love anyway when he probably could have fell in love with somebody else. Solomon wants to be with Shula and Shula eventually realizes that Solomon actually loves her. Uh, and, And they face some bumps in the road, but the end of the story is that they end up together. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because every Disney princess movie basically follows that template of two unlikely people that realize they love each other and they get together even though they have some challenges. That Song of Solomon really is the prototype for all the fairy tales that would happen. And it's a real true story of how Solomon fell in love with a woman or a girl named Shula. But all that being said, I want you to look with me at Song of Solomon chapter seven, verse number 10 uh, through verse number 11, just these two verses or verse 10 through 12. This is Solomon, uh, this is Shula realizing how Solomon feels about her and hearing the invitation that he has given her for the rest of their lives together. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. His desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine has budded. Verse 10 is so powerful and you probably never realized that there's, there's such a powerful verse tucked away in a book that you've probably been told it isn't for you or isn't relevant to church. I am my beloved's and his desire is towards or for me. You see, Song of Solomon is a picture of a successful and godly marriage, and it should be used for that. But also, marriage is a picture of God's relationship with us, Jesus and his church, God's love for his church, Jesus' love for his bride. And this verse is not just about Solomon and his bride. This verse is about God and you, God and us. And this is God's word to you, or this is our understanding in light of his love, under his love, under the canopy of his love. I am my beloved, as in I am loved by God, I belong to God. That's true about you as someone that God loves. God says, I want you to realize this about yourself. I am my beloved and his desire, God's desire is towards me. God's desire is for me. You may not accept that. You may not realize that. That may be hard for you to accept. This is the gospel. God seeks you and loves you and desires you, even if you don't realize it about yourself. This is true about God's thoughts towards you. I am my beloved and his desire is for me. Now the New Testament reiterates this again and again. Romans 8, 31, God is for us, not against us. 1 John 4, 8, and t- 8 through 10, God is love and he has demonstrated his love in that Christ died for us. And here's what's true about God being for us and God being love and God loving us. That posture towards us is irrevocable. Jesus has made it clear how he feels about you. He died for you. There's no undoing that. There's no going back and saying, okay, I didn't mean to do that. He died for you because he means it. He is for you and his blood proves that he's for you. And his love is always written in his blood to prove to you and to communicate to you that God loves you. God is for you in that he took your sin to the cross and died for you. God is love in that he loved you when you were unlovable and even if and even if you don't ever love him back. That is irrevocable and that is an unconditional promise from God and it's unconditional acceptance from God. That is the gospel. 
He invites you to come after him, to desire him above all else so that you might fully appreciate his desire for you and find the life available in him. This is God's invitation over you every day, whether you're at your best or your worst, bringing your best or bringing your worst. This is God's invitation over you each and every day. God proclaims over you and he wants you to realize every single day that you are, that we are loved by God. His desire is towards us and for us. You know how different your life would be if you begin every single day from this place? And some of you, you know, men, we're, we don't like to be vulnerable. We don't like to consider this, this being the relationship with God because somehow the world has warped our minds into thinking we shouldn't think about God that way. And some of you, because a religion has made you think it's all about, you know, do's and don'ts and all about what I bring. And some of you, sin has made you feel like God has nothing for you and doesn't want anything to do with you. But what we've just learned and what the gospel makes very clear is that you are loved by God and his desire is towards you and for you. We are loved by God. His desire is towards us and for us. Now, maybe that's news for you, and maybe it's only now getting your attention for the first time. I don't know about y'all, but my response to that is pretty simple. If this is true about God's thoughts towards me, shouldn't it get my attention, and shouldn't it begin to rewire my heart? If God's desire is for me, why or how in the world should my desire not be for him above everything else? If this is God's thoughts toward me, how in the world can anything but a desire for him rule and dominate my life? And if anything else is ruling and dominate my life, I am missing out on something incredible and something truly remarkable. The Bible features quite a few stories of people who this got their attention and it changed their life. And maybe the quintessential example of somebody who this revelation got a hold of and changed is the story of Solomon's dad, David, who no doubt passed this extremely important truth down to his son and of course inspired Solomon's rule in, in his Proverbs and even his song that he wrote. David is really the first person and becomes the best example in scripture of a, son, of a person who understands God, God's desire for them, that God actually wants a relationship with, the, with you. You know, I grew up and maybe you grew up like this. I grew up thinking that God, you know, it was kind of, God maybe loved me, but he didn't like me. You know what that means? You know what I mean? God, God cared about me, but did God really, really want something to do with me? Religion made me think, you know what? God's obligated to take me in. God's obligated to say, hey, I'll, I'll save you. But I never really thought that God actually wanted a real, vibrant, dynamic relationship with me until thankfully God got my attention with stories like this and verses like we've read today. David realized God was desiring him and that if he would pursue God, he would receive a heart full of what mattered most. In our opening read, we hear David confessing in Psalm 27 that he has made it his one desire. If you look back, I told you to highlight or underline verse four. David says in verse four, one thing have I desired that I may dwell in his presence, not just the physical building. They didn't have a temple in David's days. He's talking about the presence of God, the, the, the relationship he could have with God. Wherever he was, he could have a relationship with God that was changing his life constantly and steering his life in the right direction. David wanted to always be in the maximal presence of God. He never wanted to, to do anything to dismiss God's spirit, that hindered God's spirit, distracted himself from God's spirit. 
And if only we had that same motivation. What if we had that same drive? One thing I have desired, one thing will I seek, that I may dwell in the presence of God all the days of my life and that nothing would interrupt that. What if that was our desire? What if that was your desire? Now, let's be honest. We know what life is like when that isn't our desire. We know what it's like to live in a world where that isn't on the minds of most people. We know all too well what life is like when our desire and our drive is determined by so many things that don't take us to the place that we actually want to go to and that we, don't, that we aren't satisfied with. And I think this is the great unspoken burden of the church. I think this is the great unspoken burden of every Christian. And again, I don't mean to pry too much, but I think this is something you all would agree. I, I will agree. We are all so often pretending to put God first, but perpetually facing the disappointment, the dissatisfaction, and the unfulfillment of pursuing and prioritizing everything but that. Isn't it true? That we are really good at pretending to put God first. But we are also well aware of dealing with the dissatisfaction and the disappointment when we put everything but him first. And God bless us, we try, we really do. We try to convince ourselves that the lives we're living are out of the desire for God and for, first and foremost, all the while we are strung out and burdened with regrets and with debt and with compromise and with shame and with grief, aren't we? And I know I'm prying a bit, but this might just help us. How many of us try to convince ourselves that God is first in our lives when outwardly it's clear that he's not? And who cares what other people see? We know deep down that he's not our one desire. And we make excuses and we say, well, yeah, but you don't understand. We know how word, word that's taken. This is not to a good place. We're driven by all things the world's chasing after. We look for personal fulfillment, trying to please others, trying to earn someone's approval, trying to show someone spite. Maybe we try to act like we're living and loving God, living for God and loving God, but deep down our hearts are overwhelmed by despair and depression that we're afraid to address, that we've been deceived into thinking that God doesn't even care about or God doesn't want us to bring them to him. And maybe we think about this at church, but everywhere we shake it off and say, I gotta keep following my heart and doing what I feel like I gotta do. And, and, and can I just sound the alarm? Where has humanity gotten itself by following its heart? In a mess. Our hearts at any given moment are driven by a hundred different motives that are vying for our affections that are not looking out for our best that don't care about our best. Solomon gives us another nugget and he actually credits his dad as passing this down to him. Proverbs 4.23, he says, guard your heart above all else for it is the source of life. Our hearts are vulnerable that our hearts so easily get roped into one mess after another. In church, our generation has so many options. We have so much influence over us. Our hearts and minds are being pressured in ways our species was never, has never ever had to deal with. Which should explain so much about how we're strung out. It should explain how we, 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 we are so often otherwise invested. But it should cause us to cling to God and get to the bottom of what is motivating us every day and what's taking us away from God's best. We all have, we've, we've all have brought on ourselves addiction and anxiety in ways that we aren't even fully aware of. We're clinging to relationships, entertainment and government to be for us what only God can be. And we're trying to find ourselves in a world that doesn't offer trustworthy mirrors. Let me explain. 
Every mirror this world puts in front of you is deceptive. When you stand in front of a mirror, this world's put in front of you and that mirror is what you're judging yourself by. That mirror is what you're gauging yourself by. That mirror is what you're using to measure your life by. Have I made it? Have I been successful? Have I done enough? Am I approved enough? Am I loved enough? Do I look good enough? Have I, you know, showed them enough? Have I paid them back enough? That mirror the world puts in front of you, every mirror the world puts in front of you is deceiving you. It's designed to lie to you, to cheat you, to distract you, to shame you, and to lead you away from God's best. Do not trust the mirrors of this world. Now listen, there are things in this world that God has given us to find relief and joy from. They're not bad, but they're provisions of his grace, but they are not him. They're meant to point us to him. When those things go away, they point us to a God who doesn't go away So much of this world and the dreams it plants in us enslaves us to a desired destination that it it is impossible to arrive at. There's a Greek legend of a man named Sisyphean who was tasked to roll a boulder uphill. And I believe he thought he could get that boulder to the top of the hill one day, but the boulder kept pushing him down the hill. I think that's like so many of us. But what if? What if we admitted that our desires are not taking us to our desired destination? What if we relented to evaluating what we are prioritizing? What if we begin examining what drives us and motivates us and taking inventory of where those desires are actually taking us or not taking us? What if God's desire for, is really for us? And what if his invitation over us is the real deal and really the pathway to life that we've always wanted? That's why I believe studying the life of David over the next few weeks will be a perfect study for our generation because David is proof that there is no better way to live. David is proof that there's no way to find true peace, joy, and satisfaction than a life where we have but one desire. And if you read through the book of Psalms, it's long, I know, but many of the Psalms that that are written are written by David when he was just a young boy, a young David, who expressed this in such a powerful way about what it means to desire God and find life that God offers us, true life. It's believed that David wrote many of these songs before he ever became a star or a hero or a king. He wrote these when he was just a kid with a harp. In those days, he was not David the warrior. He was not David the hero. He was David the shepherd boy. And as a shepherd, he spent many of his nights looking at the night sky, looking, watching over his flock. He would stare at the sky and muse about God. And David realized something when he was just a shepherd boy. David began to understand himself as one of God's sheep. And he believed and saw himself or saw God to be his shepherd. It was through this lens that David perceived all of life. David wasn't dense or helpless or docile like a sheep. Quite the opposite, as all of us, we have agency, we have a strong and free will. But David understood something about human nature that we often dismiss. David believed that we are in so many ways as directionless as a sheep without a shepherd, without God as our guide and as our king and as our Lord. Like any animal, sheep have to be trained to obey their shepherds. The, sheep, the shepherd works hard to gain the sheep's trust that the sheep may gain a better and more prosperous and secure life. Of course, we as humans, we have a free will. We submit to no one. It would insult us to, it would insult most people to say, you should give up that agency to surrender to someone to guide and lead you. Yet David knew something that most everyone else didn't. David chose to lay down his freedom and place himself under the guide of the Lord God. David believed 
that exchanging his independence for total dependence would gain him unrivaled goodness and favor. And a lot of us, we don't know if we can make this exchange. We feel as if it would be swallowing our pride. It would be letting go of dreams that we have. But yet again, realize where have those desires taken us? Where do those motivations take us? Usually to a place that we are never happy with. David believed that placing himself under God's shepherding care would rewire his heart to a desire that was most important and would position him to the best version of himself towards those around him and to the God above him. When we're first introduced to David, it's in contrast to somebody else who embodied the nature and spirit of man, Israel's King Saul. Saul was at times self-seeking, other times he was looking for the approval of others. He was insecure and driven by a need for the praise of others. He was determined to be the first from his tribe to rise above the rest. Coming from the smallest of tribes, that complex drove him to a life of madness, chasing after this world and its pleasures. And it's to that version of Saul that the prophet Samuel spoke these famous words. Your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and he has made him to be prince over his people. Before we ever meet David the prince, David the warrior, David the king, we get the mention of who David really was. And this was before David was actually a man. This was when David was just a shepherd boy. In fact, that's how he enters the story. Just a few pages later, when Samuel follows God's guidance to go and find the next king, he goes to Bethlehem looking for the man that fit this description. But God interrupts Samuel as he begins to look and says, Samuel, know this. Do not look on appearance or height of stature. I have rejected those. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God knows our hearts, and that's what God desires more than anything, that our hearts would seek and pursue him first. And that's the secret to a life of fulfillment and a life of contentment, where a heart is desiring God and pleased with God in a relationship that this world cannot match. Samuel goes through all the young men in the village and God rejects all of them. And he says to the village leader, Jesse, are there no boys in your family left for me to choose or left for me, left for me to evaluate? And Jesse says, are, or Samuel says, are your sons here? And Jesse says, there remains yet the youngest, but you don't want him. He's keeping the sheep. He's just a shepherd. He's not king material. He's not warrior material. He's a shepherd. It was on the hills of Judea that the young shepherd boy sang to his God with wiring his desires to God's heart. And little did his own father know, little did anybody know that even though he was just a shepherd, he was the most qualified of the whole land to lead the nation, not only in prosperity, but in a pursuit for God. I think it would only be fitting that we end our time together previewing the rest of his life by looking at David's most famous psalm, Psalm 23. If you'll flip back a few pages, we'll close by looking at that text. David wrote this most likely as the young shepherd boy prior to us meeting him there in 1 Samuel 16. And we find in this psalm, David's confession of the choice he made to begin to see himself as a sheep and to see God as a shepherd to begin desiring God above everything else because he realized God desired him, that God loved him. Look at verse one. 
David says, the Lord is my shepherd. That's a confession. I shall not want. I could want. I have it in me to want. I have a nature in me that says, I want, I want, I want, let me go get it. But I am choosing to see God as my shepherd and I make it a conscious choice to surrender my desire to God and trust in God to be my good shepherd. And if God is a good shepherd, he'll take care of me. And if God is a good shepherd, I should just do what he says and follow him. And if God is the good shepherd, the Bible tells me he is, he's revealed himself to me to be, I can trust him. I can find in him what I cannot find in this world world. Do I have desires? Absolutely. But I shall not want any of it. Isn't that incredible? This is a teenager. And and again, a teenage boy with all the different options he had in his mind, he dwelt on the Lord as his shepherd. He had the capacity to seek other things, but he chose not to. And to filter it all through this place, verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me to beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sakes. Notice that. He makes me. He leads me. He leads me for his name's sake. David trusted God's promise to him. And he pursued God's desire for him. Rather than saying what I want, he, he deferred to what God wanted and he followed God's guide. Did David have to go and do what God said? No, he didn't. He chose to. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup is running over Even if I'm going through the valley of death, even if I'm surrounded by my enemies, my cup isn't just full. My cup is running over. I don't have to have prosperity or success to have the running over. I have it even in the worst of times. All of David's circumstances were transformed, reinterpreted when he lived from this place that God is for me. I'm living for him. Everything's gonna be okay as long as I keep following him. Because, because following after us, chasing after us, pursuing us is God's goodness and God's mercy, God's love and God's favor. Verse six, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Stabilizing us through it all is God's presence. Later on, David would write that if you delight yourself to God, he'll give you the desires of your heart, not as in whatever you want, but he will wire your desires to him. If you seek the Lord, if you begin finding your delight in him, if you admit that our greatest joy is found in him, he will begin wiring your heart to his desires. So church, what if we begin doing that today? It may take a long process for some of us because we've been wired to all sorts of things for a long time. So let's be honest about it. Let's be realistic about it. What if we begin doing that today? What if we begin seeking, seeing ourselves like David did? And what if we surrender to God's desire for us, delight in his desire for us and begin living all of life with him as our one and only desire, our greatest desire and filtering everything else through that. I think we can trust David. I think we'll only be able to trust him more as we get more into his, uh, more of his story. And we see even more, even when David went astray, he always came back to this place. This place where he spent his younger years, where he lived his best life from, where he was like a sheep under the care of the good of the greatest shepherd. 
Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. What if we, what if we don't have to wait on the goodness and mercy of God to catch up with us? What if we can dive straight and headlong into it? That's God's invitation for you every day. All that we would reconsider, we would reconsider what's first in our lives, that we would look at what drives us and motivates us and bring it all to God, seeing what he's done for us, seeing that he is for us. Jesus said later on, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. He knows you and he loves you. Do you know him? Is he your one and only desire? If you know him as the good shepherd, why wouldn't he be? Do you know him as the greatest in one desire? Do you love him more than anything else? If you spend time with him, you'll fall in love. If you pursue him, you turn to no one else. If you bring everything to him, you'd see him turn it all around for his glory and show you why he gave it to you in the first place. Can we commit together this morning to desire him above all else? Can we reflect together how he desires us? and wonder about a life lived in the fullness of his presence and realize that is God's invitation over us today, every day. He loves you, he desires you. What if we said like David, my one desire is to pursue him. David promises us we will not be disappointed if we choose to pursue him and find life under his care. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this, not just invitation, but proclamation over us that you love us and that you desire us. Even when we're undesirable, you love us and choose us and you welcome us. God, for some of us, it's a hard hurdle to get over because the world has told us otherwise, but would you, by the Holy Spirit, invite us to this place where we could begin to have a personal relationship with you? Lord Jesus is the proof that you love us. He's the proof that you've died for our sins. You've erased our debt. You've canceled our debt. You have accepted us. You love us and you're welcoming us into your presence. And all we've got to do is put our faith in you and begin trusting in you and pursuing you like you've pursued us. And we open up to ourselves a life of fulfillment and peace and joy that is unrivaled by anything else. Lord, maybe somebody would like to confess today that they have put their put something else first, they've put everything else first, they've been driven by desires that have left them empty. Lord, would you begin to change them? Would you begin to turn them around? Would you begin to show them that there is a way they can live a life where they find the peace and joy that you only offer? Would we make that confession together that one thing I desire above all else, that I may dwell in the presence of God and pursue him with all of my heart. Lord, we bring it to you. And we trust that you will do with it what only you can. Restore us, redeem us, and reposition us for a better life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.